All right. So, there was many years ago a young man who was in church. He was probably five or six years old, and, and uh, he was wandering around the lobby of the church that his family intended and just kind of looking at stuff. His youth class got out just a little bit early uh, during the Sunday school hour, and so his parents weren't quite around yet, and he was just, just looking at some of the different things in the lobby and studying things, and he, he stumbled across a big plaque with many names on it and was just looking over the plaque and reading the names and just studying it pretty intently, and the pastor walked up while he was there, and he said to the boy, he said, do you know why these names are on this plaque? And the boy said, no, pastor, I don't. And he said, this plaque is here to remember all of the men and women who died in the service. And the boy's eyes got really big and, and kind of started to well up just a little bit. And the pastor thought, well, maybe he lost a, a relative or a family member, somebody who was really near and dear to his heart in the military, and he's too choked up and he can't quite speak. And the pastor's wondering, well, what can I say to comfort this young boy? And, and finally, in almost a whisper, the little boy speaks up. He says, Pastor, did these people die in the first service or the second service? <laughs> You know, that's how a lot of the things that we say in church go, isn't it? They're perfectly clear to us. We understand exactly what we mean when we say these things, but to somebody else it can be confusing or even concerning. Let me give you an example. How many of you have ever said or sang or heard the phrase, washed in the blood of the Lamb? Pretty familiar to us. That is a powerful statement to somebody who's familiar with church but to somebody who has never been to church before, they're going to say, we are not going back to that place. Thank goodness they didn't do that today. There's even a, there's even a tongue-in-cheek phrase for the language that Christians use that's kind of insider language. It's called Christianese. And I'm going to give you some examples of Christianese this morning. Um, here's, here's a good one. I'm on fire for God. Anybody ever heard that one? One of the steadfast rules I have in my life is to never find myself on fire, right? So we know what that means. It means somebody's very passionate. They're taking their faith very seriously. Here's a good one. Wow, the Spirit was really moving in church today. Does anybody know what that means? It means church was too long. <laughs> Here's a good one. Here's a good one. Bless their heart. Anybody knows how to translate that one, right? It means you're dumb. Here's a, here's a really good one. One more. When the preacher says, in conclusion, let me translate that from Christianese for you. It means there's 20 minutes left in the sermon. Right? <laughs> there are all different Christianese words that, that over time we just sort of become familiar with, right? They just start to make sense. Uh, but there's one word that seems to confuse everybody, no matter how long you've been a Christian, and it's the word disciple. You've probably heard it before. You may even know that it's part of the mission here at Tabor. We want to reach the lost, make disciples, and we want to show grace. But what does it mean? What does it mean? Today we're going to look at what a disciple is, and today we're also going to look at how Jesus made people into disciples. So we've got to start really simply. What is a disciple? Let's translate that 
out of Christianese and into language that we can all use. If you asked a hundred people what disciple meant, you'd probably get a hundred different answers. I like the answer that a man named Jim Putman gives. He wrote a book called Disciple Shift, and it's my favorite book on the subject. I've read it a couple of times now, and he gives what I think is the best answer. He bases his answer on Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19, which says, come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. So based on that verse, Jim Putman says that a, a disciple is three things. There are three defining characteristics of a disciple. A disciple is someone who is following Christ. First of all, you see it says, come, follow me. So first of all, you have to make the decision to follow Christ. And there's uh, a lot of things that change about a person's life when you decide to follow Christ. The disciples, uh, Simon, Peter, and Andrew, they left their nets, they left their father, they left their family business, their livelihood to follow Jesus. We talked about that several weeks ago. Second, uh, come follow me and I will show you how as a person who is being changed by Christ. I will show you how Jesus is going to change us as we follow him. And finally, a disciple is somebody who is committed to the mission of Christ. I will show you how to do the work that I want done to fish for people. So a disciple is somebody who's following Christ, somebody who's being changed by Christ, and somebody who is committed to the mission of Christ. That's the definition I use. Someone who's following Christ, somebody who's being changed by Christ, and somebody who's committed to the mission of Christ. And, and what I love about this is you're never done, right? There's no level 100, final form, perfect disciple. There's always work to improve and grow as we continue in this life of faith. So um, that's, that's what a disciple is, right? So we want to reach the lost, and we want to make them into disciples, and we want to show grace. Now, so that's what a disciple is. Discipleship is just the process of helping someone become a disciple. It's the process of helping somebody become a disciple. If we say it another way, discipleship is like the relationship between a journeyman and an apprentice. It's a very similar relationship. So this week I called my buddy Chris Wessner, and I said, hey, if you were training an apprentice lineman, where would you start? Where would you start? And, and I just put the phone on speakerphone and I started taking notes as he said all of these things. And what he said to me was so fascinating because I didn't have to do a whole bunch of work to translate it into a way that would make sense in church. Here's what he said. He said, first, I'd teach them that they have to listen to everything I say. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Right? They have to listen to everything I say right away. Then I'd teach them how to climb an electrical pole. Pretty, pretty important if you're going to be a lineman. You probably need to know how to get to the top of the pole, right? Then we'll come back down to the ground and we'll work on some low voltage stuff. Finally, when they've become proficient at both of those things, we can climb a pole and start trying some high voltage work. That's discipleship. That's exactly what discipleship is. So how does that translate into the church world? First of all, we have to understand that we need to listen to everything that God says right away. We have to learn to understand, to listen to what God says right away. And then we've got to learn to start doing some of those things that we've learned about. Because it would be weird if the only thing we ever learned was what we should do. Right? 
Let me give you an example. Imagine your power goes out, and uh, you call the electric company, and the, the utility truck pulls up outside your house, and the linemen come, and they knock on your door, and they said, hey, uh, sir, ma'am, we've evaluated the problem. It looks like you blew a transformer, so what we should do is replace that transformer and install a new ground, and everything's going to be fine. And then they get in their truck, and they drive away. And you call up the electric company and you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. They just came out and told me what we should do. Yeah, but they had it memorized. Right? Just knowing what you should do isn't nearly as effective as doing what you know you should do. So it's incredibly important to know what we should do. It's equally as important to do what we should do. If we don't ever get to that stage, we will never develop an effective faith. And then we don't start with the high voltage stuff, right? Nobody starts their apprenticeship as a lineman by climbing the pole and working with, what, I don't know how many volts are in a, Brandon, how many volts are in a line? A lot. 7,000. You don't, you don't start by working with 7,000 volts, right? That's a good way to cut your workday short. Right? You, you start by working with some lower voltage stuff. Maybe a good place to start in the church world is with communion prep. Okay? By the way, we've still got two months of that open if you want to sign up for that. Uh, you, don't have to, you don't have to worry about being uh, theologically sound. Right? You don't have to worry about saying something that you'll later regret in a lesson. You don't even have to talk to anybody if you don't want to. But it's a great way to start serving in the church. Or, may, or maybe you need to be a, a part of a small group study. Not lead one, not host one, just be a part of a small group study. And you can learn and you can listen from some people who are journeymen in their faith. Or maybe, maybe you just need to hold some babies and love on them in the nursery, right? Just hold some babies. You're not going to get in over your head if you do any of those things. That's some low voltage work that you can do to start getting involved here at church. So those are critical things. And as we continue in our faith, though, as we continue to grow and mature in our faith, as we continue to be changed by Christ and become more committed to the mission of Christ, that person who's discipling you, that journeyman in your life, is going to encourage you to take a next step in your faith. And what you'll find is, hey, I may not have all the answers. I may not know exactly what I need to do in this situation, but it's okay. I've got a journeyman next to me. I've got somebody who's going to tell me, hey, 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 don't put your hand there. Or, hey, 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 maybe you need to watch out for this. Maybe you haven't thought about this in your lesson. You have somebody with years and years of experience next to you so you can have the confidence to try something that you wouldn't on your own. So uh, here, here's my favorite part. I got to thinking about Chris, and uh, Chris is a journeyman. He's a very wise one. How many of you would feel comfortable if you were an apprentice electrician and Chris was the one who was going to be teaching you how to be a lineman? How many of you feel comfortable with that? I would feel incredibly comfortable and incredibly safe if Chris was teaching me how to be a lineman. Here's the, here's the great part. How many of you think that Chris started his career as a journeyman? Anybody? No, Chris had somebody who taught him how to be a lineman, right? And with years and years of experience and practice and learning and growing and probably making a mistake or two along the way, Chris has turned into an electrician who's a journeyman that anybody would be lucky to learn from. 
Nobody starts their relationship with Christ as a journeyman. But as we continue in our faith, as we grow in our faith, with years and years of experience, we become the kind of Christian who has something worth hearing and something worth imitating. That's why Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, follow me as I follow Christ. He learned how to be a journeyman in his faith. So a disciple is somebody who's following Jesus, somebody who's being changed by Jesus, and somebody who's committed to the mission of Jesus. That's what a disciple is, and a, discipleship, a discipleship is is a verb. It's just the process of helping somebody become a disciple. So with the rest of our time together, I want to show you how Jesus does discipleship. How does Jesus make people into disciples? If you would, open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 6. Here's what we read. Then Jesus went from village to village, teaching the people, and he called his 12 disciples together, and he began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but not to take a change of clothes. Wherever you go, he said, stay in the same house until you leave town, but if any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. So the disciples went out, telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. So this is Jesus, the journeyman with his apprentices. And some of you are going, well, wait a minute, Tony. I, I thought you said that uh, a journeyman is going to start his apprentices with some, some basic stuff, learning, right? And you don't start with the high-voltage stuff. It says that Jesus sent him out to cast out demons. That seems like pretty high-voltage stuff to me. Can I just say that I'm really glad that my discipleship journey didn't start with casting out demons? Anybody else feel that way? Because I do. Right? Jesus... Uh, Jesus, it, it, it kind of looks like Jesus is starting them out with some high-voltage work. But that's not the case. If we were to look at this as the beginning of the story, then sure. Sure, maybe Jesus is starting them a little higher up than they should be. But the fact of the matter is, this isn't the beginning of the story. Mark chapter 2, right after the call of Levi, we, de- we see a discussion about fasting and a discussion about the Sabbath. And what's Jesus doing? He's teaching his disciples to listen to what he says. Mark chapter 3, after we read about the selection of the 12 disciples, Jesus teaches them by showing, and then he explains it. Mark chapter 4, it's mostly parables. And so we get to the end of the chapter, and Jesus applies those parables with the lesson of the calming of the storm. Mark chapter 5 is Jesus doing ministry while his disciples watch and learn. And that's, that's just what's recorded. Right? So there's more going on that Mark didn't write down. But this is not the beginning of their journey. Jesus isn't starting them with the high-voltage stuff. We have five chapters of Jesus teaching his apprentices. And in chapter six, he's ready for them to get to work. And where does he start them? Yeah, he starts them with giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. 
And again, I'm really glad my discipleship journey didn't start there. And maybe at first glance, that seems a little bit scary. But here's the key. Jesus doesn't say, go cast out demons. Instead, he gives them his authority to cast out demons. The message they're carrying doesn't come from them. It comes from God. This isn't Shaggy and Scooby going out and trying to solve a mystery haphazardly. They have the authority of God who created the heavens and the earth. And all they have to do is say, God said, get out of here. Right? They're not doing this by their own power. See, when you speak with that kind of authority, the only thing you have to do is trust God. That's it. When you speak with God's authority, the only thing you have to do is trust God. And that's a major lesson for us to learn too. By the way, uh, that's the reason. One of the things that I've always found odd about this passage when I've read it before is when you get to this part where it says Jesus didn't let him take a money belt or, or a change of clothes. He let him wear sandals, but he didn't let him take any food or money. Why, why does Mark think that's important information to record? It's because Jesus is teaching him an important lesson. He wants him to trust God. He wants him to trust God more than food or money or clothing or even the shelter that they have. Their primary focus is to be on trusting God. And that's a lesson for us to learn too. We have to learn to trust God more than our money. We have to learn to trust God more than our food. We have to learn to trust God more than our appearance. And we have to learn to trust God more than our shelter. Those are not easy tasks. But again, as we continue to follow Jesus, we will continue to be transformed. We will continue to be changed by Jesus, and we will continue to become more and more focused on the mission of Jesus. This is discipleship. It doesn't happen in one day. It happens over the course of a lifetime. Chris didn't become a journeyman on day three of his job. He became a journeyman over years and years and years of learning and experience. This is the path of discipleship. We have to learn to trust God. So the disciples went out, telling everyone that they must repent of their sins and turn to God, and they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. Does that sound like a successful trip to anybody? Anybody think that was a successful ministry trip? Go ahead and give me a show of hands. Anybody listening? Give me a show of hands. Very good. Okay, very good. Good. Yeah, I think this sounds like a really good ministry trip. They're preaching good sermons. They're healing sick people. They're casting out demons. I think we can stamp this one successful. And what Jesus does next is brilliant. He knows that they had some success on this trip. He knows that it went well. But what Jesus does next is brilliant. Let's pick it up in verse 30. Then the apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry trip. And told him all they had done and taught. Then Jesus said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest for a while. He's going to talk to him about it. He's going to do a, a debrief from their trip. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. So they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving. And people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and he said, hey, this is a, this is a remote place, Jesus, and it's getting kind of late. Uh, we should send the crowds away so they can go to the nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. 
Jesus said, you feed them. Quick question, Jesus. With what? We'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. Well, how much bread and food do you have? Go find out. And they came back and they reported, all right, Jesus, we've got five loaves of bread and two small fish. Now can we send the people away? Because it's getting even later and we're wasting time and they need to go to these farms and villages and get something to eat. We've only got five pieces of fish and two bread. Can we just send them five bread, two fish? Then Jesus told the disciples to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of 50 or 100, and Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish, looked up toward heaven and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. And he also divided the fish for everyone to share, and they all ate as much as they wanted. And afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish. A total of 5,000 men and their families were fed. So the disciples get back. And Jesus knows that some things went great. And he knows that inevitably some mistakes were made too. He's not being negative. He just knows that that's natural human tendency. When something goes really well, we get confident. When we get confident too quickly, it can be dangerous. Or it can be bad. This, this happened to me recently. It wasn't dangerous, but I got too confident too quickly. Uh, I was hanging a couple of doors, and I needed to router out the spots for the hinges to go. You know what I'm talking about? By the way, what is that called? Hinge spots? Is there a better word for that? Never mind. Okay. We will. <laughs> and so I don't really know anything about routering out a place for a door hinge to go. And so I called a friend of mine who does. I called Mike Cox. And uh, he showed me how to do it, and I practiced on a two-by-four until I felt confident enough to try it on the door. And the first two, um, from now on, we're going to call them hinge placements. Just If that's the wrong vernacular, just know that's what I mean, okay? Uh, and the first two hinge placements went really well. I was being slow. I was being methodical. I was taking my time. I was concentrating. The first two went really well. And I moved on to the third one. What happened? I got a little too confident. Try to go a little too quick, and it didn't go as well as it could have. Now, it wasn't a disaster. I didn't need to go out and buy a new door, but it didn't go as well as it could have. And Jesus knows that sometimes that happens in ministry. Sometimes we get a little too confident, a little too quickly, and something doesn't go as well as it could have. And so he reminds his disciples. He teaches them a lesson about the key to success in ministry. And how does he do it? Well, he starts by teaching a large crowd of 5,000 people. And he's teaching them a different lesson than he's about to teach his disciples. And he just keeps teaching and teaching. And he's telling them about the kingdom of heaven. I don't know exactly what Jesus teaches them. And eventually one of the disciples comes up and he says, Hey, listen, Jesus, uh, you know, we probably need to start thinking about wrapping up. Why don't you say in conclusion here pretty soon? Uh, it's getting kind of late and these people need to need to get home, they're going to start getting hungry. And here's where the real lesson starts. Jesus says, you feed them. Quick question, Jesus, but with what? And I suspect Jesus had a tolerant smile as he said, why don't you go and see how much food we've got out here? 
It's just five loaves of bread and two small fish. How are we going to get these people? How are we going to feed all these people, Jesus? How are we going to get them out of here in time? It's getting late. And then Jesus told the disciples to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of 50 or 100. Just groups of 50 or 100. Right? Even one of those groups with five loaves of bread and two fish is not enough. Jesus has them sit down in groups of 50 or 100. And he takes the bread and the fish, and he looked up toward heaven, and he blessed it. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to his disciples so they could distribute it to the people. And he also divided the fish for everyone to share. They ate as much as they wanted. Can I tell you something? Can I tell you that the feeding of the 5,000 isn't about feeding 5,000 people? It's a lesson for the 12 disciples. Jesus is reminding them of the heart of discipleship. And this is a lesson that we must absolutely learn to. This is the lesson that the journeymen of faith spend their lifetimes sharing with their apprentices. Jesus is reminding the disciples that you have to trust God in every situation. And that's it. You have to trust God in every situation situation. That's what discipleship is. Learning what it looks like to trust God in all the situations that life throws at you. When you have 5,000 men and their families, by the way, the families don't get enough press in this story, I think, right? So if each person had a wife and a kid, there's 15,000 people here that day, okay? Uh, It it means learning to trust God when you have to feed 15,000 people, and it's getting close to dinner time, and you don't have any food. Jesus reminds us that we have to trust God. When life is going well, how to continue to trust God. When your health fails you, how to trust God. When you lose a loved one, how to trust God. When you get confused because you're a Christian now and you're experiencing a trial and you thought all that was just going to go away, how to trust God. Or maybe when you're not a Christian yet and you're dealing with the guilt and the shame of your past, And you have to somehow get to the point where you can trust God who knows about your past and is willing to say you're forgiven. You gotta trust God. Can I just tell you that God is anxiously awaiting the opportunity to say that to you? You are forgiven. So how do you ask him to forgive you? Well, we start by acknowledging that we believe he's real. That the God of the Bible, we really believe that he created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. And we really believe that he came into this world and lived a life as we do. And we acknowledge that by the really simple saying. And uh, I want to invite you to say it with me if you want to. You certainly don't have to. Um, But you'll, you'll find it probably familiar. We just say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of the living God. That's what we say. That's how we acknowledge that we believe He's real. That's our confession of the faith that we have in Him. Then we make a decision in our mind to walk away from the sin that we've been battling. We know we won't be perfect, but we're gonna work hard to walk away from sin and toward God. And finally, we get baptized. This is the way that God has instructed us to ask for His forgiveness. 1 Peter chapter 3, we're told that baptism is where we make our appeal to God for a clear conscience. It's how we ask for forgiveness. And when we ask in baptism, the Bible tells us that God will say, you are 
forgiven. So I don't know where you are in your faith or what you've got going on in your life, but I know that no matter where you are, the answer is you need to begin to trust God. We all need to hear that in different ways this morning. Some of us have been Christians for 50 years, and we need to remember to trust God. Some of us have been Christians for five years, and we need to remember to trust God. And some of us aren't Christians yet, and we need to begin to trust God when he says you are forgiven. So today, if you need to experience that forgiveness, I want to invite you to come up and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of God's Holy Spirit.